Hello, everybody. Welcome back to High Story. I'm Matt, and my co-host over there... Hello. His name is also Matt. No relation. Wait, what? How? Thank you to everyone who listened last week. Definitely want to revisit that subject in a future episode. There's just so much to take in from that region of the world, I couldn't quite decide which story I wanted to tell. But there's no shortage of stories in that era, so we'll definitely be making a return trip at some point for now. For now, the spirit animal has blessed the studio today. She's chilling in my lap right now, chilling out the vibe in here. And we have finally made it into the beginning of spooky season. Fuck yeah, that means two things. I'm going to find some spooky shit and holiday-adjacent weirdness to delight you with. And I'm also going to be buying all the pumpkin spice stuff I can find because I'm a basic bitch. I need some more pumpkin spice rolls. Those are awesome. If you didn't get any yet, go get you some. They're awesome. If you live where I live, September is also right about where I put the downslope for the end of swamp season. If you've never been to the Houston area in the summer, next time you do laundry, take all your clothes out about 20 minutes too early and then just walk around in them like normal. That's pretty much year-round where I live. It's fucking awful. Moving on to today's topic, probably the weirdest thing I've found so far. Suffice it to say, I didn't know that could happen to a body. It's a true crime episode today, so prepare yourself mentally for however you do that, whatever you gotta do. Uh, this one's kind of creepy, kind of gross and weird, so thought it might be a fun way to slide, oh, slide into the fall. Oh, real quick. Why not, if you would be so kind, on whichever thing you're listening on, if you could slide into the section of that app that lets you review or rate or share and click on some of the stuff in there, that would be pretty awesome of you. Onwards to story time. Alright, we are going to start off today in Greenville, Kentucky in 1901. It's a very small town of about 4,000 people, and it's the birthplace of Hallie Latham Illingworth, our main character. And aside from providing an excuse to leave Kentucky, nothing else of note really happens here. It, from what I saw, it looks like every other small town you've ever driven through in your entire life. If you live in a small town, or if you've ever lived in a small town, you know, the thought I kinda wanna leave is just constantly replaying on a loop. And leave Kentucky is exactly what Hallie does. She marries a young man named James Spraker in 1919, whenever she's just 18 years old. And as most 18-year-old married couples do, they don't last very long, and she finds herself traveling westward in search of more favorable conditions. Whether it was the divorce or just 1920s Kentucky, she moves away, bouncing around the Midwest, trying to just make something work and eventually remarries a man named Donald B. Strickland in 1933. I don't know where they were living while they were married. Probably nowhere spectacular. Kind of hard to find records for this time period, especially in the middle of the Dust Bowl and Great Damn Depression, so just probably nowhere great, I'm guessing. And poor Hallie had some pretty bad luck with the men in her life as well, and once again, she finds herself traveling westward looking for more favorable conditions that sadly just weren't in the cards for Hallie. Sometime in the early spring of 1936, Hallie has a new home in gorgeous Port Angeles, Washington. I want to go here. This place seriously, seriously looks beautiful. 
And it's also the birthplace of two-time Super Bowl champion number seven, John Elway. Fucking whoopee. Oh, you know what? There's probably only football stuff to do in town, so maybe I wouldn't want to go to the town part, but an edible laced walk on Mount Storm King sounds pretty awesome. Fuck yeah. After getting settled into her new apartment, she lands herself a job at the Lake Crescent Lodge, which is just a short drive away from town. While working here, she starts to get acquainted with one of the local beer delivery experts, Monty Illingworth. And not long after that, the two are married on June 16th. Lake Crescent, by the way, this it's seriously so beautiful, too. I looked up a lot of pictures for this, and... Oh, did you? There's... Not only the gorgeous crystal clear water that looks like if you poured it from a Brita filter, there's a giant mountain across the way from it. It's actually called Mount Storm King, and it's got to be the most badass name for a mountain I think I've ever heard. Well, that is pretty metal. Which is fitting, because there's a local legend that says the lake also is known to never give up her dead. So, kind of an appropriate name. Back during the Ice Age and Copper Age times... Glaciers carved out a huge chunk of land, and a landslide dammed everything up until the lake slowly filled, respectively. Seriously, I cannot stress how clear this water is up here. It's so... I want to go. I want to go again. I need to go do something in that area of the country. I want to... I need a vacation, and whenever I do finally get one, that's where I want to take it, because I've got to just go walk around in nature in the mountains and do outside -y type shit up there. That sounds awesome. And for whatever reason, moving back on to the rest of the story, the lake, there's very little nitrogen in the lake, so no algae is really able to form. And as you might guess, the water there's fucking cold. It's 44 degrees year-round. I am not getting in that water. I'm going to either die of hypothermia or embarrass myself in front of my date. All the men who are nodding along right now, you get it. The lodge looks like a pretty nice place to stay, too. $160 a night, pretty decent menu, but damn is it expensive. $41 for a salmon filet. Although it did come with an assortment of delicious sounding side items, and it is Washington, so it's super fresh. And with that location, I can see how they'd charge that, but still, I'm going for the $28 fish and chips option. I'm on a budget, damn it. Back when we were going today, they probably just had slug burgers and dog soup. I looked up a bunch of 1930s slang for this episode. Oh, shit. This is going to be a ton of fun. Slug burgers were hamburgers that were mixed with stale bread. And dog soup is my new favorite way to say it. Glass of water. Um, it also referred to people that couldn't afford anything else besides a glass of water. Dude, you got to fix the, the thingy. Oh, yeah, right, right, right. Sorry, hold on. Back to June 16th. Hallie, now Illingworth, and her new husband, Monty, get to experience the joys of honeymoon season. A blossoming, fiery new romance, and in such a pretty area of the country, too. What, I mean, what more could you ask for, really? How about a... Uh, how about a Duke Ellington-fueled lakeside cruise in your brand new Model A Ford? No. No. Hallie, I'm guessing, asked for a lot more distance between herself and the physical violence she was often a victim of. Surprise, surprise, the beer delivery guy for a 1930s Washington Lakeside Tavern is an abusive alcoholic. <gasps> Who could have guessed? Not that she should have or could have known that when she met him. You know, for all she knows, he was just a hard-working man with a job. But, come on, his job should at least raise an eyebrow for you guys out there. 
He's single and he does what for work? Come on. He wasn't exactly shy about it either. Hallie had shown up to work on more than one occasion with bruises, black eyes, saying she'd been choked, and one time Monty even broke a couple of teeth. Damn, dude, what the hell? It only took five months for the police to break up a DV incident outside the tavern one morning. That's domestic violence if you're not on board. Probably fucking colder than lake balls up there. You know, five months after they were married puts this right around November. I bet this was a Thanksgiving-based fight, or... Maybe she found out Monty was having an affair, because Monty, as it turns out, was also a notorious poonhound, at least according to one source. <laughs> and no, they definitely didn't call him a notorious poonhound in their article. They opted for the much more pleasant-sounding ladies' man. But the terminology isn't really that important. The important part is that he liked to sleep around and do dirtbag stuff. He was a real rattlecap, that one! What was that? Then after almost a year and a half of living like this, on December 22nd, 1937, Hallie goes missing, and that is the last time anybody will see her for about three years. Oh shit, why? The police began investigating the disappearance and quickly turned their attention to Mr. Illingworth, whom I, I really want to keep calling him Mr. Burns. His name is Monty. They're, <laughs> they're just as evil, and they drive the same kind of old man car. Although I don't think our Monty is quite as wealthy, based on his job and the series of events that's to come. Then the police get a slant at Mr. Burns about the disappearance, and he says, Well, I have no idea what happened to the broad. She must have breezed away on her getaway sticks, gotten all gowed up, and lammed off with that skid rogue of a flaming youth who's always trying to box job my hooch. Um... Well, we know you're not the butter and egg man in town, but we don't think you're a red hot either. Well, you'd sure be the cat's pajamas if you could drop a dime. Sure would be a shame if that dame were to turn up in a Chicago overcoat looking like a Harlem sunset. And then Mr. Burns says, No need to put the screws to me, coppers. If that choice bit of calico turns up, I'll hack it down to the hooskow and sing about that canary until all the high binders in the White House dust out and have to gooseberry lay for all the glad rags. I could be a 12-year-old prepubescent boy or an 87-year-old man who's won several strongman competitions. We all sounded like this in the 20s and 30s. Oh god, that's fun. If that bit immediately made sense to you, go see a specialist immediately. Otherwise, if you don't have the same unhealthy amount of free time as I do, allow me to translate. Police question Mr. Illingworth about Hallie's disappearance, and say he and he says he has no idea where she is, and that she must have run away with either a fisherman or a lieutenant in the Navy. I've seen it listed in a couple different sources. Looking at her track record, though, I think the fisherman is probably the more likely candidate for Hallie to have run away with. And honestly, who could blame her? Fucking get me away from this abusive asshole. Except for it doesn't matter what Monty said about it, because it's not true. Monty's also thought to have been having an affair with another woman since before Hallie went missing, a woman named Eleanor Pearson. She was the daughter of some high pillow at a timber company. High pillow is another slang term for person in charge. These are fun for me, okay? Anyway, in 1938, he's granted an interlocutory decree of divorce, which is a new legalese word for temporary. That one's fun, too. Monty and Eleanor take a bunk to Long Beach, California, and settle into a new life. I tried to find out more about this Eleanor lady, and I found a couple things that mention her on, like, Ancestry.com and a couple of other real short articles. But they kept linking back to the main story for this, but 
So nothing else came up for her. I really wanted to find out if her father was anybody of interest or if he had any kind of backstory, but there wasn't even a name to search for. I did find, however, I found a list of insults that Teddy Roosevelt liked to say. Oh, let me turn the thing back on. Oh, and I also didn't read them before I recorded this, so this is going to be fun. I have no idea what this is going to be like. All right, I think I got it. Also, this is going to have that accent, so heads up. Being one who belongs to the cult of non-virility. Classical ignoramus. Fragrant man-swine. <laughs> nice, I like that one. Handshake like a wilted petunia. Infernal skunk. Little emasculated massive inanity. Whoa, damn, Roosevelt. A mind that functions at six guinea pig powered. Fucking damn. <laughs> six guinea pigs. Miserable little snob. Oh, uh, yeah, that one's new. Thorough-paced scoundrel. Well-meaning pink-headed anarchist crank. White-livered weakling. Eh, alright, a few of those are fun. I feel like Roosevelt probably said some way worse stuff off the record, though, probably. He was... He was fun. And I'm also kind of disappointed that I couldn't find anything else to fill out this little segue, because it's almost three years later in the story now. Oh, and I did it again somehow, because it's also July. July 6th, 1940, to be exact. Louis Rolf and his unnamed brother were out fishing on the lake one morning. They're trolling around over near Sledgehammer Point. Again, fucking cool name. And they spot something poking up out of the water. Oh, is it a log? What? No, it's a... All kids love logs. No! I'm just saying, you never know, it could be. A... No, it's never a log. It's a body. You pipe down over there. A body that had been hogtied, weighed down with rocks, wrapped in blankets, and thrown in the lake two and a half years ago, and is now covered in a strange, marbly, whitish-gray, almost waxy substance. The brothers tell their boss, Superintendent A.D. Roth, about what they'd just found, and he tells them, It was probably a deer, you dunderheaded fuss budgets! And they're like, So they call Prosecutor Coroner Ralph Smythe, and it's spelled so close to Smithers, I keep wanting to say Smithers when I read his name. It's Smythe, though, S-M-Y-T-H-E. Anyway, they call him and Sheriff Charlie Kemp to investigate, and they transport the body to the mortuary in Port Angeles. I was confused for a while why they were taking her to a place to buy statues, until I realized I was thinking of the word statuary. How's your brain today? At the mortuary, I got it. a delightfully named medical student, Harlan McNutt, examines the body and they make a few super intriguing discoveries. An autopsy showed that whoever this was met a very violent end. Harlan noted that the nose, the upper lip, and the upper part of her face was missing, and because her hands were exposed, there were no fingerprints to identify the body with. There was also hemorrhaging and bruising in the chest area, and she'd clearly been strangled. Having nowhere else to turn for answers, they bury Hallie in a potter's grave outside Port Angeles until they can figure out who she really is. They thought for a little while it might have been the body of Mary and Frances Stephan, who went missing from Chicago, but her Chicago overcoat was covering up a broken neck, not a strangled one. Oh, Chicago overcoat means coffin, by the way. And then there's this other problem with this waxy, almost soap-like substance encasing the rest of her body. Check this shit! Out. Oh, lay it on me. Saponification. 
The process by which triglycerides are combined with a strong base to form fatty acid metal salts during the soap making process. The distribution of saturated and unsaturated fatty acid determines the hardness, aroma, cleansing, lather, and moisturizing abilities of soaps. Why does that matter? Triglycerides are a type of lipid found in blood that is stored in fat cells, in fact it's the most common type of fat found in your body, and is what your body uses for energy. Not quite the same as cholesterol that's used to build cells and other hormones, but there is a substance known as adipocere, or corpse wax, or graves wax, and it's a natural part of the decomposition process, albeit a rare one, that is formed best in moist environments with little to no oxygen, like in mud on bodies at the bottom of a lake, for instance. Hallie's body had been at the bottom of the lake for so long that the nearly freezing temperature of the lake, 44 degrees, remember, and the lack of nitrogen in the water prohibiting the growth of algae, kept her body preserved well enough by Tish for the fat in her body to interact with the water, which slowly hydrolyzed into adipocere or corpse wax, or grave wax, whichever one you want to call it. They're both kind of fun. A process that, incidentally, preserved her almost perfectly, too. Essentially, Hallie had been turned into a gigantic woman-sized bar of soap that nobody should ever attempt to wash themselves with. Don't worry, I wasn't gonna. They did eventually ID Miss Illingworth sometime in September of 1941, about 14 months later. It could very well be 82 years ago from today, for all we know. I mean, it was September. Dates are plus or minus a few days or weeks. Probably is a safe bet. Could be today, could be tomorrow, could be never. Could be an alternate dimension, too. I don't know. They had no fingerprints to check against any databases, plus it was the 40s by now, and there were no databases or DNA. They didn't even have base technology in their radios. That's why we all sound like this. <laughs> and if it weren't for some dental work, she'd never... <laughs> God damn it. <laughs> if it weren't for some dental work she'd had done a few years ago, I'm not sure they would ever have ID'd her. Good job. A portion of her upper plate had been worked on before, so they sent out photos to pretty much every dentist until somebody finally pinged off on the photo in South Dakota. A dentist recognized the unique pattern and dropped the dime on the Port A investigatory team, saying who she actually was. And I think this next part, I think they take, this is likely in September of 1941, based on the timeline I think here. So now that we know who this body is, we need to find out who killed her. Oh, I think I know who did it. Alright, what evidence do we have? There's the clothes she had on, the dental records, and the soap rope. Wait. That's not... Once identified, some of Hallie's friends confirmed that they recognized the clothes as belonging to Hallie. And then the, denti the, the dentist again said, yeah, it's totally her. So let's go back to the tavern for a while and chit-chat with some of the local patrons, shall we? All right, Just but I'm imagine a 1940s murder investigation in a tavern. A 19... What? A 1940s murder investigation in a tavern. Got it. Nailed it that time. Shut your heads and listen up, booze hounds. We're behind the eight ball on figuring out who chilled off the chippy dame who probably used to serve you hooch. We know she didn't do the Dutch act, but aside from the rope, this was a clean sneak. Now, now, come on. The broad didn't get all togged to the bricks just to end up in a wooden kimono, leaving me and my dicks nothing but a trip for biscuits. Can nobody put us wise to the identity of the button man? 
And then the bartender chimes in and says, Don't bother bumping gums with those mollycoddles. They go over the edge with the rams the moment they breeze through my door. If you want the wire on some rope, I can put a bee in your bonnet. And the detective says, Well, spell it, booze jockey. Matt, come back. We used to have a real Bruno deliver our swill. He was a little off the track. Said he needed a rope to pull his boiler out of the mud. Nah. Then he dusts off with a deck full of muggles and juju and never returned my rope. Mm. Well, that's no coffee and donut piece of information. Does this bindle stiff have a moniker? Oh my god. Don't worry, I get... <laughs> oh, sorry. Um, Don't worry, I got you on the translation again. So, the police matched rope fibers on the body to rope fibers found on other ropes at the tavern and asked the owner if he knows anything about it. He tells them that Monty had come in one day asking for about 50 to 100 feet of rope, and he needed it to pull his car out of the mud. But then he never brought the rope back. So they compare the samples, and wouldn't you know it, we got a match, boys. Oh, and uh, muggles and juju are old-timey words for marijuana. Boiler is car. Bindle stiff is like a hobo. Molly coddle is like an effeminate man. And all of those are super fun to say, so enjoy those. Back to the normal speaking world, finally. I'm going to chill it out with some of the slang stuff. I know it's probably getting annoying by now. With Hallie finally identified, it's time to track down Monty. It takes about a month to locate this man. He's slippery with the hooch, I tell you. God damn it. <laughs> okay, I promise I'm done. On October 26, 1941, they finally catch up to him at his home in Long Beach. He is arrested by L.A. Sheriff's deputies and charged with what? Oh, please don't. Bumping off, blipping on, blowing down, cutting up, bopping, croaking, pumping, pooping, zotsing, rubbing out the life of Hallie Latham Illingworth. They charged him with murder, okay? Alright. You son of a bitch. Oh, and as they were taking him away, he told his mommy like a little kid, Mother, you know I didn't do it. And she replied back with, Yes, son, I know you didn't do it. Care to elaborate on those voices? I don't know what that was, but it was fun for me and I'm leaving it in. The trial doesn't start until February of the following year. And I really hope that whole time he was only given bleach and actual soap mummy shavings to bathe with. But I don't think he was. And Eleanor, the lady he was having an affair with, she would neither confirm nor deny if the two were actually married. To me, that says they totally were, but she didn't want anything to do with him or his bleach wax baths anymore since he's being arrested for murder. The trial, by the way, was so sensationalized that it was right next to World War II shit in the newspapers. This was a big deal up there, I guess. Speaking of, the trial. his defense is laughable. He claims that the dead woman is not Haley. Hallie? I've been saying Hallie this whole time. I think it's Hallie. I hope it's not Haley. I'm not going back and editing those out, so... Hallie. He says it's not Hallie and that the last time he saw her, she was still alive. Come on, how weak of an argument is that? The jury looks at each other and says, get that weak shit out of the courtroom, because the dentist earlier saying, I gave Hallie those teeth, that's totally her, and her friend saying, I gave her those clothes, that's totally her. I don't know if that's how they said it, but fucking who knows? It, it might be, you don't know. It doesn't take long, about four hours, for the jury to make a decision, and on March 5th, they tell him to get fucked and convict him on second-degree murder, and he's sentenced to life in prison at Washington State Penitentiary in Walla Walla. Goodbye, my friend, you messed up again. Slap on the wrists? Well, not this time. Cheers if you got that. Now, the main difference between first and second degree murder is either premeditated or crime of passion. Did this person plan to kill the other person, or did it just kind of happen in the heat of the moment? 
A criminologist from the Washington State Attorney General's office would attest that it was likely more of a crime of passion that went too far in the apartment one night, and that his treatment of the body afterwards was merely to conceal what he had done. A friend of hers would later agree with that assessment, that it seems logical based on their long history of violence in their relationship. However, and this is super speculatory on my part, I think to some degree there had to be some planning involved in this. Being the ladies' man that he was, and also being the abusive alcoholic piece of shit that he also was, here's what I think happened. Maybe possibly. The two had been married for a little over a year, and Monty had become bored with their marriage and needed to find a way out. Meanwhile, he's banging the Timberman's daughter on the side and is really starting to enjoy spending time with her since, you know, money that he probably doesn't have because he's a beer delivery guy, and hatches a plan to get rid of Hallie and then move away to Long Beach with his new squeeze. I'm not sure why he didn't just get a divorce and leave instead of killing her. Maybe she wouldn't agree to one, but that's what he does. He gets his car stuck one day, needing a rope to pull it out, and then a light bulb comes on over his head. I have a rope. I have a car. There's this big-ass lake right here. I need to get rid of my wife because she won't sign the damn divorce papers so I can move away with my other almost wife. It's nearly Christmas. Okay, if I do this right, I can ring in the new year in my new life with my new wife on a new beach. So he beats her, strangles her, ties her up in blankets with the rope, drives her out to the lake, rows her out to the middle of Sledgehammer Point, weighs her down with the rock, and pushes her over the side. Not long after, moves to Long Beach with Eleanor, files for, and is granted his temporary divorce decree, and goes on about his life. Or, it could have gone down exactly like the experts who actually worked on the case said it went down. That's just based on the information available to me. Both of those scenarios make the same amount of sense. So, take that for what it's worth. Monty, after being given a life sentence, is only in jail for nine years before being paroled in 1951 and is now a free man again. That seems way too short of a sentence for that. Anyway, after being paroled, he relocates to Los Alamitos, and on Guy Fawkes Day, November 5th, 1974, incredibly, a roving gang of still-active Prohibition-era housewives beat and hogtie him, force-feed him bathtub bourbon, and catapult him two towns over, never to be heard from again. I just had to throw in one last Simpsons reference, sorry. He did die on that day, though, so no more Monty. Yay. And that's pretty much going to do it for the main part of today's story. No more Monty. Woo. But I know you're just as curious as I was about corpse wax stuff, and I had a lot of other questions I wanted answers to when I was doing this, so... Some other examples of this happening. In 1658, Sir Thomas Brown wrote about the phenomenon... In a hydropical body ten years buried in a churchyard, we met with a fat concretion where the nitre of the earth and the salt and lascivious liquor of the body had coagulated large lumps of fat into the consistence of the hardest castile soap, whereof part remaineth with us. That is really hard to read in a modern-day accent. Um, the, uh, the Higgins brothers in 1913, they were murdered by their father in Scotland in 1911 and dumped in a flooded quarry, and when they found them, they had almost completely transformed into adipocere. Then there was a pair of soap mummies exhumed in Philly in 1875 that had been saponified, now known as the Soap Man and Lady. She was completely turned into soap, but the man's internal organs remained almost mostly preserved. Almost mostly. I also came across something that said... 
TikTok warns viewers not to Google soap lady or something like that. Fuck you, TikTok. Yeah, fuck off. Holy shit, though. The soap maker of Correggio. The soap maker of Correggio. I don't know. Uh, was an Italian serial killer who used her victims to make soap and tea cakes. I'm going to read about her later on. Adipocere has also proved useful in many forensic investigations as well. Helps with uh, preserving tissue, slowing down decomposition, and it also really helps set up a timeline too. But I think that's all I really have for you this week. If you like the way I tell stories, tell your friends about how I tell stories and spread the word for the show. Do the free stuff. I need your help with the iTunes reviews, five stars, say some stuff about the show, what you like, don't like, if whatever, I don't really care, just say, if they'll let you just do punctuation, just do punctuation, I don't really, you know, say whatever, then the only help for me at this point is professional, so, <laughs> at, um, anyway, I hope I made you laugh a little bit today, hope that was fun for you. As of this moment, I haven't quite decided my upcoming schedule of episodes, but I'll make sure to find some super interesting stuff because I have way too much time on my hands. I don't know what that was. So thank you everybody for listening, and I'll be seeing you next Sunday, folks. Stay kind. <laughs>